Well, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And folks, you're getting your goddamn Sopranos episode. How about that? (laughs) We had to do it, uh, if only to get Will to watch some more of The Sopranos. Although, uh, I suspect he'll still tell us he's at the end of season two, and all he did was watch Many Saints of Newark. Uh, that's exactly correct. I watched another entry in the Sopranos franchise, <laughs> which, which, you know, is, is, is not nothing, you know, uh, it's often said that in the, in the neoliberal age, you know, when history is over, we have to take these kind of small symbolic victories. And even though we can't move forward into a future where Will watches seasons three, four, five, and six of the Sopranos, getting him to watch the many saints of Newark, uh, isn't, isn't nothing. I want to explain something to you and the listeners. <laughs> I love Goodfellas. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. If Goodfellas were 100 hours long, I would have a problem. I honestly don't know uh, how you can watch two seasons of The Sopranos and then and then stop watching. Like, it's not something you put a period on or, or an ellipsis. You just you just got to keep going. I am eventually going to get back to it. I am so tired of looking at these McMansions, at these offices, at these strip clubs, at these hideous New Jersey highways. I needed some beauty in my life. I, I got a log, uh, Kung Fu movies and 70s pornos and Three Stooges short. <laughs> on Letterboxd, just to give me something else to look at. You know, I am curious, Will, we've had a lot of meta discussion on this show, and in private as well, I should say, off mic, about your viewing of The Sopranos. But it's, you know, it's all been about like, are you going to watch it? Have you watched it? That kind of stuff. I don't think we've actually really talked about the show. And I am curious to hear your thoughts on it now that we've, or, or rather, I suppose, your first impressions since you're two seasons in. Well, I actually do really like what I've seen so far. It's a wonderful character study of Tony Soprano, brilliantly played by James Gandolfini. The whole cast is incredible. It's a wonderful portrait of this petty bourgeois New Jersey mob world, a wonderfully textured and detailed portrait, uh, hysterically fun episode to episode having grown up immersed in like martin scorsese movies what surprises me and challenges me and that i also respect about it is how cold the show is at least so far visually it's very prosaic and it has this juxtaposition between extreme violence and you know very wry sardonic comedy And unlike, you know, the Martin Scorsese movies that are always sort of taking place in the heads of the characters and invite you to sort of share in the catharsis or the paranoia or the excitement of those characters, you know, this one is so rigorously objective. Uh, which I think perhaps fuels that sensation of why I wanted to have a bit of a break from it, because it's so uh, rigorously unpretty. (laughs) It's so (laughs) ugly, this universe. These are some very bland observations that I'm sure everyone has made already and, and some not very deep observations from a Sopranos novice. I partly just asked as a way of ascertaining uh, whether you'd actually, in fact, watch the first two seasons or whether I just kind of bullied you, me and the fans who just bullied you into uh, into, you know, saying you had. But um, yeah, you just said all the right things about it. So uh, congratulations on being a Sopranos novice. Good. And just to give a little spoiler for this episode, um, every Everything I said is a reason why I was a little disappointed watching this film, The Many Saints of Newark, which (laughs) shares certain of the qualities I mentioned, but not enough of them. You know, going back to something you just said, 
in the recent piece I did on The Sopranos and Many Saints of Newark, something that I, I wrote and which occurred to me in, in thinking about them both was how much the general aura of pessimism and ugliness feels quite refreshing today. You know, one of the things that I was trying, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that, you, you know, you say this makes you want to kind of take a pause from the show, which um, I don't quite understand, but I, I guess I respect that. It, it is a lot, 86 hours is a lot of TV to watch. But for me, this is one of the things that I think draws me to The Sopranos the most. And, you know, I was trying to think through what it is about this show, you know, which I've loved since I first watched it and I guess 2008 or something like that. I'm currently on what I think is my fifth viewing, something like that. And I was trying to think through what it is about this show that has uh, produced this great renaissance that we're seeing now. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree, Sopranos stuff is absolutely everywhere right now. To that point, I know that there was a viral article in the New York Times a week or two yes. ago about why is everyone watching The Sopranos today? And I don't know what you saw. I saw a surprising number of people dunking on it, saying like, Oh well, the, the why why are they writing this article now? Haven't people always been watching The Sopranos? And I don't know. I thought that was kind of unfair. I mean, there's been a there's been a marked increase in visibility of The Sopranos over the last couple of years. Everyone's doing the memes. Everyone's posting the inside jokes. Yeah. So this was the piece by uh, Willie Stolly. I think that's how you pronounce it. I uh, I read it and uh, I thought that it was quite good in many ways. I think uh, it really tapped into something that I think is important about the current. And Sopranos Renaissance, which was nice to read in New York Times Magazine, which which is the fact, you know, I think the quite undeniable fact that there is very much a left wing current in Sopranos fandom right now, and and that that is a big component of the Sopranos Renaissance. So in my uh, recent piece, I was trying to think some of these things through. And for me, one of the big explanations for this, I mean, I think there are political explanations as well, or political and cultural explanations for the Soprano Renaissance as well. But for me, one of the biggest things is just that the show uh, as a piece of TV is so willing to show you suburban blandness. It's willing to show you unpleasant people. It's willing to show you people who are, you know, not particularly virtuous I think even the show's more virtuous characters are often, you know, still pretty bad people. I think that really is refreshing, just even thinking about it in the narrow sense of just what's shown on TV. I feel like, you know, and this is something we've discussed a lot before, there's been this increasing kind of demand for a type of, I don't know, moral didacticism. Drink. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. But yeah, like morally upright entertainment that shows <laughs> us like positive values. Because navigating ambiguities is a privilege that we cannot afford in this very tricky Donald Trump-infused <laughs> landscape of ours. Yeah, that's right. Irony got us Donald Trump is an actual sentiment that I think far too many people agree with. And, you know, before you had that particular cultural reaction to the Trump era, you know, you also had the Obama era and particularly the second term of the Obama presidency in which, you know, some of these trends were already kind of visible in earlier forms, but which in a big way was preoccupied, it seems to me anyway, culturally preoccupied. This is a massive generalization, obviously, with a kind of, uh, I don't know, bland positivity and with that becoming sort of the norm in culture. This next thing wasn't exactly new, but I think certainly circa 2012. Again, this is generalizing a bit. It kind of went into overdrive. 
I think there was a tendency for stories to be told from the perspective of individual subjectivities, you know, stories which shared certain individual perspectives, that kind of thing. And again, uh, to go back to something else you said about The Sopranos, it really does show rather than tell there is remarkable objectivity to the universe. It does ask you to identify with Tony Soprano somewhat, in you know, insofar as he's the protagonist, but it certainly doesn't literally put you in his head. You know, it's it's not a show as maybe some of the cruder and more parochial critics of The Sopranos might suggest. It's not a show that is about justifying Tony Soprano in some way or something like that. And, this, you know, The Sopranos has obviously had a, a considerable legacy vis-a-vis the rest of television. It was one of the handful of shows that put television on the map as something that could be high-minded and sophisticated and artistic. But I think that legacy is largely kind of a hollow one. I mean, few shows have really recaptured any of the things that made The Sopranos great. But more to the point, I don't think that many shows today, especially, um, you know, for the past sort of six or seven years, maybe, uh, have been derivative of this thing that we're talking about, this kind of rigorous objectivity. How many shows that belong to, you know, what's now called prestige TV can offer you such a diverse assortment of characters who have so much moral and ethical complexity layered on? I don't think there have been very many. And set against this backdrop of, you know, a society in decline, uh, there, there is actually a show like this, but it came before the era of prestige TV. It's called Midnight Blue, and it was hosted by a character almost as complex as Tony Soprano. His name was Al Goldstein. I think people should <laughs> check that out. <laughs> Just another universe Will has been uh, re-immersing himself in before <laughs> before uh, starting season three of The Sopranos. Well, I, I'm glad you said that, because to turn back to the political reasons for the show uh, having a renaissance, to me, this theme of decline really is one of the big explanations. And you know, that piece by Willie Staley had that great quote from Felix Biederman which was something about, you know, it, it, the show shows you decline, but not as something kind of epochal and romantic. It's not that, you know, you leave, you know, as Rome burns, you leave with your lover in your arms or something like that. It's actually just a slow chipping away at your expectations for the kind of life that you once thought, you know, were once led to believe you might be able to enjoy. It's sitting in front of a desk or standing for more and more hours every day and having less and less time to do the things that you like. It's It's taking on the worst features of your parents while seeing your own worst features reflected in your children. Um, You know, I'm paraphrasing, but that was uh, kind of the essence of what Felix said. And I I think that's a really uh, articulate and concise uh, summation of the theme of decline as you see it in The Sopranos. Well, the show obviously invites comparison to Martin Scorsese and Francis Coppola and a certain mob movie canon But its mobsters are postmodern mobsters. They're constantly watching those movies. The show sort of announces itself as such in the first or second episode where Martin Scorsese himself makes a cameo appearance. (laughs) And, And these guys are constantly imagining themselves in the lineage of these these characters and of course they're not or if they are they're the sort of grandkids who have inherited everything from those characters like like they're on they're in a a ladder below even the vulgar characters from goodfellas or casino yeah it's like michael corleone lives in a gated
gated off mansion somewhere on Long Island that's patrolled by armed guards. It's like Tony Soprano just lives like a well-paid professor at Princeton or like a hospital administrator or like some member of the petite bourgeoisie or professional managerial class would live. And that's not to say like the old guys had class, you know, the, <laughs> the old mobsters were a different kind of mobster. It, yeah, those guys operated by a code. <laughs> yeah, it, it's more like first as tragedy, second as farce. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I realized that something I really uh, have always liked about the show, but which to me feels even more kind of resonant now is, you know, if you if you think to that that monologue that Tony has right at the beginning in, in the very first episode, you know, where he's talking about his feeling that the best is over. I don't know. The morning of the day I got sick, I've been thinking. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that. I know. But lately I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. Many Americans, I think, feel that way. I think about my father. He never reached the heights like me. But in a lot of ways, he had it better. He had his people. They had their standards. They had pride. Today, what do we got? Did you have these feelings of loss more acutely in the hours before you collapsed? I don't know. You know, I feel like the show captures the fact uh, very well that amid this kind of pungent stench of decline and decadence and hypocrisy and economic and moral rot and all the rest of it, the show captures the dissonance between all of that, which everyone can see all around them, and the fact that the official narrative is always that the best is yet to come, which, you know, on the one hand, you see all this decline all around you. And then on the other hand, everyone around you talks like you're at a suburban church luncheon or a meeting of the local PTA at the, you know, upper crust school where you send your kids or whatever. That glaring contradiction between what the official narrative is and what everybody intuitively knows to be true feels, if anything, more resonant in the Biden era, I think, than it did in the 1990s. You know, the world of The Sopranos and, you know, all of the drama in The Sopranos, all of what's unique about The Sopranos, I think, swings on the fact that all of the characters inhabit this world that is premised on violence and brutality. But there are violence and brutality that can never really be acknowledged because everyone and everything, you know, wears the face of, you know, respectable suburban affluence. And, you know, obviously this wasn't what David Chase literally had in mind when he created the show. But if there's a better metaphor for American politics, uh, I'm not sure what it is. When I was a kid, guys like me were brought up to follow codes. Hey, jerk off. What'd you say? What? Antonio Soprano. I wonder if I can talk to you alone for a moment, Mrs. Soprano. On the basis of the Sanford Binet, he's high IQ. You can't prove it by me. He's got a D plus average. Well, he doesn't apply himself, but he is smart. The results tell us he's a leader. So I watched The Many Saints of Newark, the prequel to The Sopranos that recently opened. I watched it on my laptop, as it seems most people chose to do. 
I'm tempted to just turn the rest of the episode over to you on this because uh, obviously there's a lot of fan service in this movie. Uh, there are a lot of Easter eggs for the superheads that aren't going to mean a whole lot to me. And being a relative Sopranos novice, I was mostly just sort of baffled by the style and tone of it, which is so different, so much sort of heavier and burnished and, for want of a better phrase, mob movie-like than the TV show is. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I felt that too much was stuffed in the two-hour runtime. I'm not the first person to observe that it feels like an entire season of a TV show crammed into one movie. And I thought that the movie also raised a lot of provocative ideas. For instance, the clash between the Italian gangs and the black gangs in Newark in the late 60s and early 70s that it doesn't really follow through on in particularly interesting ways. Maybe you feel otherwise, though. What's your take as a super fan? Well, I do think I was able to enjoy parts of it a bit more than you by virtue of two things, really. One, just the fact that, you know, yeah, I got more of the in-jokes and the fan servicey things. But two, it was my first movie back in a theater in almost two years. And so that just inevitably colored the whole thing. You know, it really was amazing to be back in a theater and, you know, seeing the new Sopranos movie on opening night. I won't pretend I didn't enjoy that as an experience. But basically, I agree. I mean, I think this film, there are, there are a lot of issues with it, but the most obvious problem uh, is that it doesn't give its characters or its plots, and there are quite a few of, of both, it doesn't really give either of them any room to breathe. This wants to be the story of uh, how did Tony Soprano become Tony Soprano, which is a pretty fruitful, potentially fruitful premise, right? Because in Sopranos, the show, we get to see these wonderful flashbacks to Tony's childhood, which are often um, incredibly insightful. And one of them, in fact, is even kind of recreated in the movie. It's the one where Tony recalls the time during or around the Newark riots after spending weeks seeing his sister Janice go off in the car uh, with their dad and not being allowed to go every weekend. Tony finally decides to follow along and find out where they were going. And it turns out that he's been taking her to the fair the whole time. And he sees his dad getting arrested because it turns out that the real reason his dad is taking Janice there is because, uh, you know, it's just an excuse for all the mob guys to have a meeting while they're like nominally taking their daughters to the fair. So th this is the kind of flashback that you see in the show, which I think often these kind of flashbacks give a huge amount of insight into Tony's psyche and sometimes develop things that really on paper kind of shouldn't work. Like, again, I don't know if you've gotten to this, but the explanation for why Tony uh, is triggered by particular kinds of meat and this kind of weird quasi-Oedipal explanation for that, that's the kind of thing you get out of the flashbacks in the show. But so contra that kind of thing in The Many Saints of Newark, you know, the, these kind of fruitful and insightful probings of the character of Tony Soprano... Tony, it turns out, is more of a kind of background character. It's more about the, the world around Tony. So the film was billed as, you know, who or what made Tony Soprano. In fact, that was the poster outside the movie theater. That's what it said in large all caps uh, right before I went in to see the movie. But the film is much more about Dickie Moltisanti, who's, you know, the father of Christopher, never seen on the show, dead long before the show begins, kind of a structuring absence Somebody who is very important to Tony, somebody who's important to Christopher as well, although he represents a father that he's never uh, known, which also kind of explains, you know, his relationship to Tony. 
But in addition to trying to be a Tony Soprano origin story and not really being one, in addition to being the story of Dickie Moltisanti, this is also the story of a character called Harold, who is an associate of Dickie's, who eventually, you know, he's quite ambitious. He's a, you know, a striver and he starts his own criminal enterprise that becomes kind of a rival. The Newark riots are also uh, happening during the movie. And I say they're happening during the movie because they don't really have a great deal to do with the plot. Well, they're a sort of inciting incident. It kind of triggers Harold's ascent to become Dickie Moltisanti's counterpart in the black mob world. Yeah, but fundamentally, it doesn't really affect the plot. I mean, I guess to be generous, you could say it's kind of a catalyzing incident. But the only real plot point connected to the Newark riots is the fact that Dickie, who about 20 minutes into the movie, I mean, we should have said spoiler warning, but I'm assuming you've seen the movie or don't care about spoilers if you're listening to this. But 20 minutes into the movie or so, Dickie violently kills his own father. Played by uh, Mr. Ray Liotta, looking like a monster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, looking the age his character is supposed to be in this film. He also plays another character, which is something we can talk about as well. But, you know, he kills his father, who has abused his stepmom, who is, you know, what, maybe 50 years younger than Mm -hmm. his father. He's brought her back from Italy, is very abusive to her. Dickie is romantically and sexually interested, so, you know, he murders his father. Uh, And the Newark riots are kind of the pretext he uses to dispose of the body because, you know, he lights a fire in in a building to dispose of the body and kind of uses the arson pretext. But beyond that, uh, like so much in this movie, a lot of it is much more about kind of the ambient aura than it is about making any particular statement about anything. That act of, you know, killing your father and essentially blaming it on, on the black rioters is such a loaded thing to include in the movie and seems to carry so much symbolic weight and significance, but it it kind of feels deployed the way that a lot of lesser prestige TV would use it. You know, the race riots and everything they represent are this free-flowing signifier of a big important thing that everyone's thinking about right now. Yeah, it's not really clear what the film has to say on that. And I have to say, I kind of wish that it hadn't attempted to do that at all. It's not not to say that you couldn't have a film about the Newark riots or involving the Newark riots, but I'm just not sure that they really uh, add anything here. They seem much more about creating an aura and demonstrating that the people behind The Sopranos are willing to directly engage with race in some way than they do about making any particular point about it. The story of Tony Soprano becoming Tony Soprano is really kind of the third plank of the drama. You know, we follow him as he's at this uncertain stage in life, sort of experimenting with petty crime, like uh, having a gambling ring in his school. I found this actually even less compelling than the Moltisanti stuff which I didn't expect. Tony Soprano is the selling point, but I think I would have rather just seen a movie set in the world of the Sopranos that spent more time on these warring gangs and then try to awkwardly shoehorn all this Tony Soprano stuff in, even though Tony Soprano, I think, is played very well and uncannily at times by James Gandolfini's son. Yeah, I think Michael Gandolfini did a wonderful job. I don't mind uh, most of the performances. I think um, a lot of them are quite good. Uh, Alessandra Nivola, who 
plays Dickie, I think, uh, has a lot of potential as well. But uh, the film just doesn't give these characters, you know, Harold is another example of this. He's played by Leslie Odom Jr., who uh, does a lot with what he's given, I think. The characters, you know, are just not given much room to breathe. There's no time in a movie that's 120 minutes long to sufficiently develop all of these different threads. Um, I think the female characters especially are underserved by this. The Michaela de Rossi character, who is uh, Dickie's stepmom and later mistress, uh, Gia Sapini, I think that character uh, potentially has a lot of depth. She's very well played. But again, she doesn't have a lot to do. Because, you know, if this were a, a show that was many seasons long, you know, if this was the many seasons of Newark, you know, you'd have whole arcs featuring uh, these characters. I do think it's possible to take these raw elements, all of these raw elements, and turn them into a compelling movie. There are mob movies or, you know, all sorts of movies that have had comparable, like, uh, sweeping scopes and huge buffets of characters that have got the job done in less time and that have, much like the show did, allowed them to have these little eccentric moments that they so often do on the show that they don't have time for here. Well, possibly, but I think in order for this movie to do that, it really would have to be something other than a Sopranos prequel or origin story. It can't both be the type of movie you're suggesting and be something that gives us insights into these very well-developed and complex characters that we know from an 86-episode long TV show. But just to finish my thought from before, I I think the female characters are particularly badly served by this kind of maximalist approach that the film takes. The world of The Sopranos is obviously a very patriarchal one. So when the female characters in particular aren't given room to breathe, you kind of just get these mob wife archetypes and things like that. And there's not much else to it. There is a plot about Dickie's mistress having aspirations of her own, aspirations of economic independence, wanting to start a business, wanting to have her own salon. But again, it's just one of the many underdeveloped threads in the movie. Similarly, it turns out uh, somewhere in Act 2 that she's having an affair with Harold, who by this point is, you know, one of Dickie's major rivals in the crime world. Again, it's unclear why this exists. Uh, The film can't develop it. We don't know why this relationship started or how it started. It seems to exist for no other reason uh, than so she can later tell Dickie about it uh, while they're uh, alone on a beach together and he can murder her. (laughs) Which I think is a very unsatisfactory end to the character and also just doesn't really yield uh, any kind of insights. One reason why I'm so unmoved by the film is I don't really care how Tony Soprano became Tony Soprano. I feel like all those answers are answered on the run of the Sopranos when you see his relationship with his mother and you see his relationship with all of these characters. And what you don't see is sort of evocative in its absence. Like, I don't uh, I don't need to see the epic movie that shows me how Basil Fawlty bought a hotel. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure I really buy that uh, comparison because Basil Fawlty is not, you know, as complex a character as Tony Soprano. And he's also... Well, I, I disagree, but Fawlty go ahead. Towers is also a comedy. <laughs> any any show you want. I don't, I don't need to see how Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader either. Fair enough. Well, actually, you know, Will, now that you've uh, raised the prospect of a Fawlty Towers prequel, I'm actually now kind of sold on the idea we should have a gritty faulty towers reboot where uh you know basil faulty goes to therapy and we learn all about 
uh, his relationship to his mother and how he recreated it in his domineering wife. I'd like to know what Manuel was like before he left Barcelona. Was <laughs> was he like a dumb guy in Barcelona or was it just a language issue? Was he driven out by Franco? <laughs> <laughs> These are the kinds of things we need to know. And, and I have a bad feeling that, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility <laughs> that these questions could be answered by the culture the next two to five years. Yeah, if if there's a brand, it will be revived. <laughs> so I did want to say a few positive things about the film. I mean, I have to say I wasn't overly negative in my review of it, because I actually do think uh, there are some noble ambitions to the many saints of Newark. I think it's simply trying to be too many things at once. As a fan of the show, I did feel served by some things and I felt quite patronized by others. I think fan service often overreaches pretty considerably uh, with in-jokes and allusions and things like that. And boy, did this movie ever do that in a few places. I mean, I don't think we literally need to hear Junior Soprano say the words, he never had the makings of a varsity athlete. That's a minor thing, but it's a, it's an example of the kind of thing I mean. Something that persistently bugs me about prequels. You know, prequels, if they're going to be anything, they should be extremely dumb fan fiction that nourishes, you know, people who are uh, excessively immersed in a particular universe by feeding them all these kind of little esoteric references and things like that. It's been my experience that prequels and origin stories frequently overreach in this regard to the point where they actually end up disrupting the very universes that they supposedly exist to explain. So, for example, I don't know if we ever did an episode on Rogue One. Can you remind me? Uh, we did not, although we did see it together. <laughs> That's right. We, we saw it together. I can never remember which shitty Star Wars movies we've actually covered on this show. But I mean, it's like that movie is supposed to end in the universe of Star Wars before the beginning of uh, A New Hope. And if you were to watch A New Hope right after, that's completely implausible. In Rogue One, the Rebellion already has this like massive fleet. They're able to go toe to toe with the Empire. They're able to have a Return of the Jedi style battle. In the University of the original Star Wars trilogy, the implication, I think, was very much that the Death Star plans had been gotten through some kind of espionage, something like that. And instead, for no other reason than to just show you lots of shiny things, uh, Rogue One has to make them come out of this, you know, massive space battle and stuff like that. So that kind of thing annoys me. And by the same token, what the Many Saints of Newark decides to do with the character of Silvio Dante is just absolutely beyond me. So if you've seen The Sopranos, you know that St Silvio Dante, played by Stephen Van Zandt, also of E Street Band fame, is supposed to have been in a quote-unquote little crew with Tony and Ralph Cifaretto and Jackie Aprile Sr. when they were kids. In this movie, they decided to cast a guy who I'm sorry just looks like a guy who dressed up as Silvio Dante for Halloween and is doing like a middlingly good impression Although, you know, he does get a lot of the physical mannerisms down pretty well. He seems to be doing an impression of Silvio Dante, and his age is just completely wrong. There's a running gag in the movie uh, about how he has, like, a hairpiece. And how is Silvio roughly the same age as Tony while also being a grown man with a hairpiece at a time when Tony is 16? That just doesn't make any sense. And I don't know, it's like if you're going to do an origin story and you're going to do fan service, it seems to me uh, you can't be making alterations in the universe like that. Similarly, actually, Christopher is, is I think, only supposed to be something like eight years younger than Tony. And here he seems to be more like 16 years younger. 
which feels pedantic to complain about. But in Sopranos, the show, you know, we learn that Tony was an older guy who Christopher looked up to when he was on the cusp of adolescence, and that also Tony and his cousin teased him. And, you know, that this is still something that affects Christopher decades later. And something like that can't be the case if Christopher has just been born and Tony is already 16. So I don't know. Things like that irritated me as a fan of the show, even though I did enjoy some of the fan servicey stuff. This is above my head, folks, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> this isn't substantive at all. But one moment that annoyed me to no end was the part where they just had to write like a little scene for Carmella and then they had to have someone refer to Carmella. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's like on the OJ miniseries where they keep referring to Kim and Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> Before we leave this topic, you raised a point on Twitter the other day that got a certain amount of pushback, but also a certain amount of agreement that you couldn't think of a time in recent decades when culture, particularly film and television culture, has been so disproportionately interested in like origin stories and reboots that incorporate elements of uh, the previous incarnation of the property, you know, like soft reboots, like the Star Wars movies, but but origin stories too, because we've been hearing about this new dark and gritty Willy Wonka reboot that's shooting right now. With... I, lo I love the poster. <laughs> I love that it it's Timothy Chalamet looking really serious, and it's just called Wonka. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a joke when I saw it. Yeah, it looks like a fake movie that would be on like 30 Rock or something like that. I was surprised to see you get some pushback. There were some people who were saying things like, well, uh, back in the 30s, they made a sequel to Frankenstein, and therefore, or, you know, like, the Three Stooges made a bunch of movies. This has been with us all the time, which I don't think is valid. You know, the, the Frankenstein sequels, or any sequels from the 30s, the Charlie Chan movies, or what have you, were not like, hey, remember how much you loved Charlie Chan when you were five years old? Well, wouldn't it be great now that you're an office drone to recapture some of that uncomfortable complicated <laughs> happiness that you had when you were five wouldn't that be right. wonderful right right so jeet here for example pointed to the fact that there was a wizard of oz film in 1910 you know so the 1939 wizard of oz was not technically original you know someone else made the point that of the top 50 grossing movies of all time only two or three depending on how you count are completely original so not based on an existing franchise or property I think those are worthwhile points, but I don't think it's it's good enough to just say, well, people in the past rebooted things. Ergo, our culture isn't singularly preoccupied with reboots and, and origin stories. I think there is a very solid case to be made that what's happening now is very different from, you know, something like the arc uh, from the 1910 Wizard of Oz silent movie to, you know, the Wizard of Oz uh, that we all know and love from the late 1930s. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, you wouldn't know, and I, I don't, but I'm assuming the 1910 Wizard of Oz was not some giant blockbuster that, you know, <laughs> solidified itself in the cultural imaginary. No, I don't think the audience that saw the Judy Garland one was thinking of that film. Uh, right. Uh, they may have been thinking of the book series by L. Frank Baum, but I don't know. I, I think there's a difference between adapting a popular book series into a movie and creating a whole franchise that's kind of running on the exhaust fumes of an earlier incarnation of the franchise creating like, something that is a franchise and that is yeah. and that is referred to in popular language as one because you know when i went to see uh, many saints of newark among the trailers i got you know you you mentioned the the <laughs> 
the hilariously named Wonka uh, already. That's one of, you know, many uh, movies like this that's coming out. But I saw a trailer for the new Ghostbusters movie, which is also some kind of origin movie. When will we be free of that fucking series? Oh, my God. Let let it die. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's also a new Home Alone movie that's coming out. There's a new Sex in the City movie. Did you know about this? A Big and Carrie, I don't know if it's an origin story, but, you know, Big and Big and Carrie, the continuation, I don't know, he gets cold feet again and, and loses her and oh. presumably wins her back. I think those two should break it off. They've had enough chances. Now, obviously, all of this is still anecdotal uh, somewhat, although somebody did send me some useful data on sequels and prequels between 1911 and 2010. So this is not, unfortunately, up-to-date data. It doesn't include the last 11 years, but there is a marked spike, a very marked spike in movies which were sequels or prequels after the mid-1980s, a more than twofold increase, peaking in the late 1990s and then going down only slightly into the late 2000s. So I think there's a fair bit of quantitative evidence as well for this phenomenon. And if anybody has data on this from the last 10 years, I'd be absolutely fascinated to see it. Although uh, I, I pretty much have no doubt about what it's going to reveal. Well, I think the key thing is that so many of these movies and the recent Star Wars movies are the definitive example of this are dependent on your nostalgia for an earlier incarnation of this franchise to get anything out of it. They're not reinventions, per se, of the franchise for a new generation that isn't familiar with it. Although, of course, they are hoping to attract a younger audience as well. A lot of it is like, let's recapture that feeling you used to have by bringing together the the people and the sounds and the characters and the, the beats, uh, the sets that you liked 20 years ago. And, yeah, and you know, in the case of the hyper-real version of this we've talked about on the show, you know, films like Ready Player One and... Space Jam, A New Legacy. It's not only like, here's the universe that you know and love. It's like, here's all the universes you know and love (laughs) depicted as commercial properties in a narrative universe where the stakes are whether you, the fan, are going to still have access to all of these different commercial properties that you know and love. Or whether, you know, some nebulously defined corporate monopoly is going to take them away from you. Uh, This message brought to you by a definitely not nebulous corporate monopoly that owns all of these properties. Anyway, I'm comfortable saying that there is currently a preoccupation with both reboots and prequels or origin stories that I think is qualitatively unique. And look, I know I sound like a total broken record on this whole kind of end of history point. It really is getting to the point where it's embarrassing for me to keep saying that combination of words uh, on this show. But it's, it's difficult for me to think of another cultural moment where mass and popular culture so ubiquitously drew on the detritus of the past. Films are supposedly where, you know, we go to dream, right? They're where the the collective unconscious goes to dream. So I think it's very telling when even our fantasies, even fantasies that are, you know, science fiction and things like that, are drawing so much on existing universes, existing characters, existing narratives, and things like that. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this recently, and I'm hoping to write more about it. But I do think there are a few reasons for this that are actually quite concrete. Talking about, you know, how history has been canceled, the future has been canceled, things like that. It can sound very ethereal, very mystical. But I think the roots of this are actually quite concrete and material. I mean, I think it's it's abundantly clear, and you know, you'd be able to speak to this. I think that you know the business model today for the production of you know large blockbusters in particular very much incentivizes 
films which draw on existing universes and which are kind of risk averse in that way, you know, which don't develop new worlds because there's a much higher uh, rate of failure when you do that kind of thing. Uh, there's also been a death of kind of mid-budget cinema, which, you know, in the 20th century gave us some of the most interesting movies because with middle-budget cinema, there's a lot more opportunity for risk. So those kind of very basic reasons of, you know, the, the cultural economy and the way that it's currently hardwired, I think, are one reason why there are so many films and cultural products in this vein these days. But, you know, another thing, I mean, you know, listeners to this show will know that I, I don't accept the axiom that politics is downstream from culture. I think it's very much the other way around. I think given the radical foreclosure of political possibilities over the last 30, 40 years, it shouldn't really be a surprise that the realm of cultural possibility has shrunk also. And, you know, putting it that way, it sounds kind of abstract and ethereal again, but I don't think it actually is. The economic incentive structures, the business structures, are currently not set up to encourage real novelty or innovation. They're not set up to probe the cultural imaginary or develop it or influence it in any uh, meaningful or, or substantive way, I would argue. Similarly, the incentive structures in contemporary politics are pretty much hardwired against actual change. There is a dearth right now of genuine popular power, collective power, in a way that there was throughout much of the 20th century, and in a way which gave us very powerful narratives of progress for decades. It's not just the 20th century. I think that's a theme you can see playing out in one way or another going back hundreds of years. And it's a theme that was abruptly kind of canceled beginning in the late 1980s and in, in the early 90s. So I think there's a very obvious relationship between these two things. You know, in preparing for this episode, I was also revisiting an essay by Mark Fisher. Uh, this is his great essay, The Slow Cancellation of the Future. He's talking in this essay, uh, as he so often did, about music culture. And of course, a lot of his references to music and also to TV, which he mentions uh, in the essay, they're very Britain-specific. But I think everything he says is entirely apt and very germane to this conversation. Fisher writes... Rather than the old recoiling from the new in fear and incomprehension, those whose expectations were formed in an earlier era are more likely to be startled by the sheer persistence of recognizable forms. Nowhere is this clearer than in popular music culture. It was through the mutations of popular music that many of us who grew up in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s learned to treasure the passage of cultural time. But faced with 21st century music, it is the very sense of future shock which has disappeared. This is quickly established by performing a simple thought experiment. Imagine any record released in the past couple of years being beamed back in time to, say, 1995 and played on the radio. It's hard to think that it will produce any jolt in the listeners. On the contrary, what would be likely to shock our 1995 audience would be the very recognizability of the sounds. Would music really have changed so little in the next 17 years? Contrast this with the rapid turnover of styles between the 1960s and the 1990s. Play a jungle record from 1993 to someone in 1989, and it would have sounded like something so new that it challenged them to rethink what music was or could be. While 20th century experimental culture was seized by a recombinatorial delirium, that's a Fisher neologism there, which made it feel as if newness was infinitely available, the 21st century is oppressed by a crushing sense of finitude and exhaustion. It doesn't feel like the future, or alternatively, it doesn't feel as if the 21st century has started yet. We remain trapped in the 20th century. Fisher goes on a little later in the essay. Uh, he says, The feeling of belatedness of living after the gold rush is as omnipresent as it is disavowed. 
living after the gold rush, you might say the the best is over. (laughs) He continues, Compare the fallow terrain of the current moment with the fecundity of previous periods, and you will quickly be accused of nostalgia. And again, you know, I'll interject here to say if this all sounds a little bit kind of abstract and ethereal, Fisher, as he always does, uh, offers us a very concrete explanation. He writes, The shift into so-called post-Fordism with globalization, ubiquitous computerization, and the casualization of labor resulted in a complete transformation in the way that work and leisure were organized. In the last 10 to 15 years, meanwhile, the internet and mobile telecommunications technology have altered the texture of everyday experience beyond all recognition. Yet perhaps because of all of this, there is an increasing sense that culture has lost the ability to grasp and articulate the present. Or it could be that, in one very important sense, there is no present to grasp and articulate anymore. So Fisher goes on to develop two more ideas, two more explanations for this condition we're discussing, both of which have their roots in Frederick Jameson, who wrote what I guess is the first uh, really significant book about the phenomenon of postmodernism and postmodernity. So, you know, Frederick Jameson talked about this idea of the waning of historicity in late capitalism. So by that, Jameson is talking about the fact that we live in what feels like and imagines itself to be a kind of post-historical era. You know, it's like all the developments have happened already, and now there's just this kind of fixed present. Um, You know, but Fisher, in his essay, The Slow Cancellation of the Future, goes on to ask, you know, what it is about neoliberal and and post-Fordist capitalism, um, this current phase of capitalism that we lived in then and are still living through, that specifically leads to what he calls a culture of retrospection and pastiche. And he offers two possible explanations here. One of them, he says, could it be that neoliberal capitalism's destruction of solidarity and security brought about a compensatory hungering for the well-established and the familiar? So I think very provocative, that suggestion, and there's um, a lot to think about there. His second explanation, or his second possible explanation, is the one I find most interesting. He writes, Despite all its rhetoric of novelty and innovation, neoliberal capitalism has gradually but systematically deprived artists of the resources necessary to produce the new. As public service broadcasts became marketized, there was an increased tendency to turn out cultural productions that resembled what was already successful. Naturally, the besieging of attention applies to producers as much as it does to consumers. Producing the new depends upon certain kinds of withdrawal, from, for instance, sociality as much as from pre-existing cultural forms. But the currently dominant form of socially networked cyberspace, with its endless opportunities for microcontact and its deluge of YouTube links, has made withdrawal more difficult than ever before. Or, as Simon Reynolds so pithily put it, in recent years, everyday life has sped up, but culture has slowed down. I wanted to bring all of this up, uh, this essay of Fisher's, partly just because it's very interesting, but also because it offers some very concrete explanations for why it is that the culture seems to be at a juncture where pastiche and repetition, and I would add to what Fisher says, also kind of explanation and origins, why those things seem to be so prominent and why it's so hard to find anything that feels truly exterior to them. Are you in the mafia? Am I in the what? Whatever you want to call it, organized crime. That's total crap. Who told you that? Dad, I've lived in the house all my life. I've seen police come with warrants. I've seen you going out at 3 in the morning. So you never seen Doc Cusimano go out at 3 in the morning on a call? Did the Cusimano kids ever find $50,000 in Krugerrands and a 45 automatic while they were hunting for Easter eggs? I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype, and it's offensive. Well, rather than go toe-to-toe with Fisher and Jameson, uh, I will instead propose ending this episode by 
asking you uh, what other Sopranos origin story films would you like to see? <laughs> like, imagine if there was a whole series of these things, like Solo or uh, Rogue One. What would you like to see? You know, what characters would you like to see fleshed out? Uh, I personally would like to see Peter Bogdanovich reprise the role of his psychiatrist in a in a feature length film. Uh, well, I would personally like to see uh, what happens with Meadows' roommate Caitlin after uh, her culture shock, uh, moving to the Big Apple and being overwhelmed by everything she finds there. I want to know the story behind Jackie Aprile's jacket and why it is he's so excited to give it to Tony. Also, why it is that Tony doesn't seem that interested in the jacket. Let's get a two-hour origin movie that explains that in all its details. I'm a big fan of the actor John Hurd, who unfortunately passed away in 2017, and I was a great fan of his arc on the first season playing the New Jersey police detective who threw himself off a bridge. I would like to see... It's too bad that John Hurd has passed away, because I would have liked to have spent more time in that world with that character. Kind of like a comedy of manners you know what i always like to imagine is that in that role he's actually playing mr McAllister from home alone <laughs> you know who who he of course did play but this is just like you know after they lost kevin for like the fifth time or whatever the McAllisters finally got a divorce and he had to start a life as a new jersey detective um but he was haunted by you know the ghosts of his past and you know spent the last few years, years of his life kind of in sadness and depression developing ties to the mob before it all got too much for him wow from that big chicago suburban house that we all know and love to this just another parable for american decline isn't it <laughs> when i was 17 it was a very good year it was a very good year for small town girls and soft summer night we'd hide from the lights on the village green when I was 17 